0: Hello, everyone, and Merry Christmas, Happy Yule, and Winter Blessings. I am so honored to be able to spend today with you and offer a little company no matter what your day looks like. Taking a break from the family duties? Find it easier to spend this day alone? No matter what, we've got you. Every year, we host the annual variety show, and we feature writers and helpers From not only The Witch Daily Show, but from the entire Witchway universe. So whether you're relaxing, making cookies, or drinking hot cocoa, take a deep breath,
1: and let's get started. Author Crystal Hope will soon be releasing her debut novel, Blood and Lies. Blood and Lies is a paranormal romance featuring supernatural investigators and gothic horror with a bit of spice stirred in. Check out other works she's contributed to, including Spells for Good Times, as well as Conjuring with Cannabis, Spells and Rituals for the Weed Witch by Carrie Connor with Crystal Hope and Tyler D. Martin. These witchy works can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books-A-Million, or your favorite local witchy shop. Follow Crystal Hope's publishing journal on Instagram at Crystal Hope. That's K-R-Y-S-T-L-E-H-O-P-E. Between
0: each segment, I'm going to read a heartwarming holiday story from Reader's Digest. My husband has had dementia for almost a decade. He has almost no short term memory. He can no longer read, use a phone, use a credit card. Six years ago, when the Christmas catalogs came, I saw a tablecloth I wanted, but it was sold out. On Christmas morning, there was an unwrapped box under the tree. Somehow, my husband had found the right catalog, the right tablecloth, called them and convinced them to find a tablecloth to send in time for Christmas. I won't ever know how he did it, but it was the best gift ever My Roberta. Next, we're going to share a poem by Elise Wells.
1: I'm Elise Wells and here's some poetry I've written bringing in the warmth of winter. The warm chill, chitting, chatting, around a fire crackling, big and small, conversations tit for tatting, laughing, when behind it all begins suspicion starts to wondering, turns to hoping, asking, is it snowing? I see the question on each face, and then a pause as all observe, turning behind, looking ahead, pointing to flashes of white in the sky. They become cold and wet upon our skin, in seconds of flurried falling, frantic, the smoke is curling towards the sky as cold flecks fall on the edge of our fire's heat. The snow is falling, they reply, exclaim, the conversation shifting, opening to the group of us, circled round, closing, small and personal exchanges, smiling at one another, in the warmth of falling snow around a fire. Pull your hands into your sweater, breathe in the smoke and snow, sit within our circle. Embrace and experience the warm chill of a winter fire and its power to embrace you. Winter Beaches Sun-soaked sands lie empty Echoes of laughter Dead on the whipping winds across the shore Summer's ghosts Salt in the air, smelling of the coral and schools beneath The warmth just below the rolling foam Crashing rocks, weeping as it hits and sprays Violent torrents, smooth and calm, gliding towards me Belly up, polishing the sand up and back up, and back. I am the rock, and now, the sand. Hit hard, mists blinding. Now, shining like glass in the sun, but stronger. Glass, before the furnace and forge, raw a million tiny parts, hold me in your hand and see, I can't be counted. I flow and wait, flow and wait, torn up to return again, quiet, present, patient, active. Time is my companion, both enemy and friend, constant, as am I. May your winter be filled with warmth and contemplation, comfort and rest. Bright blessings.
0: The Father's Blessing. My stepfather Marlon bought a dancing Christmas tree in the mid 2000s as a gimmick decoration. Marlon passed away in 2014. My sister Stacy had taken possession of it along the way. Stacy got engaged to her longtime boyfriend on Thanksgiving nights. Marlon had met him. The tree was unpacked but had no batteries. Later that evening with all the ladies sitting around talking, the tree lit up and started to dance. The empty battery pack was in hand and the only conclusion we could reach was that Marlon was sending his blessing and dancing a jig by Norman Powers. Next, we are doing a Yule Time Pathworking.
2: Welcome. To your guided winter solstice meditation this is a sacred moment to honor your inner darkness and welcome the returning light bring yourself to a comfortable seated or lying position come to stillness close your eyes focus on your breath take four deep breaths breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth inhale to welcome abundant new beginnings and exhale to let go of what no longer serves. The winter solstice marks the shortest day and the longest night of the year. Allowing us a moment suspended in time to reflect and let the darkness cocoon us into what lies ahead. Let's begin. You are standing in a lush forest as a light snow falls. The sun sets slowly in the distance. The scent of wood smoke fills your nose, and you follow the path towards it, slowly weaving your way through the trees, breathing in the scent of pine and wood smoke in the air. As the cold breeze caresses your face, and the snow and forest floor crunch beneath your feet. All around, nature sleeps. With each step, the scent of wood smoke gets stronger. With each step, you begin to release that which no longer serves you. Soffing off the previous year's worries, stresses, and burdens. As you do this, you begin to feel lighter and lighter. Taking joy in nature's embrace as the darkness slowly sets in. As the sun falls gently beneath the horizon and night deepens its hold, the stars begin to appear in the sky above the trees. You come upon a small clearing where a small fire burns in a pit, and sit beside it. Slowly, you begin to add twigs to keep the fire going. With each twig you add, you add a wish for the new year. As the firelight grows brighter, so the fire within you grows too. You rest for a time beside the warm and cozy hearth. Hear the crackle of the fire, the crisp breeze on your cheek, the light Sounds of the deep, dark forest on the longest night of the year. When you are ready, open your eyes. Begin to fully awaken, ready and excited for the return of the light.
0: Photo from Heaven. My daughter, an only child, Talina, was killed by a drunk driver in 1994. It nearly destroyed me, but I kept going somehow. I had a favorite picture of Talina from when she was three. Christmas Day, me sitting on the floor, and her sitting on my lap. The bond between us was so beautiful. Somehow I lost the picture after she died. A few years later on Christmas Day, I opened a book and found the photo inside. I know she sent it to me as a present from heaven. Dale Victory. Next, we are sharing Yule traditions from Greece.
1: Growing up as a Greek child, the Christmas traditions that we have were mostly normal. Leaving out cookies for Santa, listening for the reindeer hooves on the roof as we fell asleep at night. But we also had to keep an eye out for the evil fairies. The Kalakanzari are an ancient part of Greek folklore that have made their way into Christmas traditions in Greece. They are depicted as small, troll or goblin-like creatures. And these little minions are only allowed out of their underworld homes from the 25th of December to the 6th of January, throughout the 12 days of Christmas. They enter our world through caves, tunnels, or the knotholes of trees. And this is also where they will re-enter the Underworld on January 6th. Historically, they would have been warded away at the knotholes of trees or these other entrance ways, like the caves or the tunnels into the earth. But today, we mostly ward them away at fireplaces and entrances to our homes. Why do we need to ward away these cute little Christmas goblins? Well, they're not the safest creatures to have around. They sneak into homes, steal your food, and hide all of your tools and most personal items. And they simply make a mess, just for the fun of it. They're tricksters. That's one thing. But they also have an evil side. Every single Yuletide, they do their best to begin chopping away at the World Tree, also known as the Tree of Life. But not all hope is lost for the Tree of Life is far underground, its trunk is thick, and so this won't be an easy feat. As little Greek children, we are told that we can help save the Tree of Life by distracting the Kalakanzari from their task. So along with Christmas cookies and milk for Santa, we would also leave out distractions for these fey. Very similar to the recipes for a witch bottle or a spirit trap that you might have heard of, The Kalakanzari are distracted by puzzles. So we might tie strings into many knots so that they'll try to take out the knots and get distracted this way. We might decide to put out games and toys that have tricky solutions like puzzles or Sudoku pages. And the most popular distraction is to put out a colander or a vegetable strainer so that the Kalakanzari will find themselves counting every single hole losing count, and going back, thus getting even more distracted. So if you want to bring a bit of Greek folklore into your Yuletide practice, especially with your little ones, this is a great way to do so. Place puzzles, knotted strings, or colanders at the entrances to your home and in the openings of your fireplace. You could even decorate your Yule log with them. Protect the world tree and have fun doing it.
0: The Christmas Cassette In June 2003, I buried my 26-year-old son. The following Christmas was the worst of my life. I was consumed with grief to my very core. As I awoke early Christmas morning, I decided to write a few Christmas cards, related or not. I went to the drawer where I stored the boxed cards. The drawer would only open slightly. Something was jamming it. The cause of the jam was an unlabeled cassette. I had no idea what was on it or how it had gotten there when I plopped the cassette into the player and waited to hear whatever mystery it held. Soon I heard my own voice. In a whisper I say, it's Christmas morning and Kyle is sleeping. Kyle awakens and sleepily comes to the realization that he gets to check the tree. His childish voice goes on to name the toys from Santa, the last words on the tape are both heartfelt and heartbreaking. They are only three-year-old Kyle saying, Merry Christmas, Mom. I know my son made this Christmas miracle happen so I could have a smile on my face that morning. Connie Owens Next, we are sharing tea and fairy tales.
3: Hello, friends, and welcome. On this Winter's day, I invite you to get cosy. Take some time to gather your favourite hot drink to hold close to warm you as we embark on a journey of tea and fairy tales. I hope that you feel restful, and cosy, and ready for me to begin. Two short, sweet, and a little bewitching fairy tales. The Frost Fairies. King Winter sat upon his sparkling ice throne, and waving his sceptre, a giant icicle, he called out to the snow fairies and the frost fairies to gather near. Tell me, snow fairies, King Winter asked, who have you made happy by your work of late? They chorused. We put white dresses upon the trees, white blankets over the grasses, and little white caps upon each fence post. And when the people woke, they shouted and laughed. They threw so much snow over each other that they were dressed in white themselves. Children created castles and animals, and people all made out of snow. Then sleds were bought out, and we heard the music of sleigh bells. All the people were made happy by our work. Well done, said King Winter, and bid them to return to this work. And in a twinkling, the snow fairies were away in their cloud boat and throwing a fresh shower of snowflake kisses down onto King Winter and all the land below. Now, it's your turn, Frost Fairies. Tell me of your work, said King Winter. As he looked upon a glittering band of beings, wearing jewels of ice. Jack Frost, their leader, stepped forwards. We have created pictures upon the frosted windows and hung your jewels upon the trees and covered the skating ponds, said King Winter. You and the snow fairies seem to be making the world glad now. But soon the sunbeams will put our things away. They will hide the snowballs and crack the skating ponds so that the ice may float downstream. I want to make something that will keep long after we and Winter has gone away." After all, King Winter mused, when the Golden Queen of Summer is gone, Her hay and grain harvest is in the barns. And when the russet witch of autumn departs, her harvests of apples, nuts and berries sits in cellars. I want to leave a harvest too. But so few sunbeams shine this season, said Jack Frost. How can we grow without them? my harvest will grow best without them, said King Winter. In fact, I shall hang up a thick cloud curtain and ask the sunbeams to play upon the other side while my harvest grows, and Mr North Wind will help, and if all you frost fairies do your liveliest work, my harvest will soon be ready. And the north wind soon came with cold air that whirled and danced through the skies, branches and rattling window panes. And the frost fairies danced over fields and ponds, wondering all the while what this winter harvest would be. Soon, on the shortest midwinter's day, they found out horses were hitched to sledges, and men of the land started for the great lakes and rivers. The ice had frozen so thick that it was time to fill the ice-houses. With great saws and metal poles, vast blocks of ice were placed upon sledges ready for the ice-houses of the grandest gilded mansions, where the king Winter's harvest would keep through the very hottest of weather to tinkle in glasses of lemonade and make ice cream at midsummer the ice men have come out to play sang the frost fairies and the ice harvest shall still be seen from when the queen of summer reigns, and all the way through to when we raise a toast a sparkling cider to the russet autumn witch The Elder Tree Mother One particularly snowy winter, as children often do, a little boy caught a cold. His mother dressed him in his warmest pyjamas and put him into bed with a warming cup of elderberry tea before leaving him to rest. The boy drank his delicious tea steaming from the cup but then watched in surprise at the teapot the lid toppled off and long branches burst forth from it in all directions at such a speed in a moment there was filling the room a most glorious tall elder tree and in that tree sat an old woman, in a dress made of leaves, bordered with frilly white elder blossoms. Who are you? asked the little boy. Folk once called me a dryad, said the woman, but I have a better name. I am the Elder Tree Mother. She took the little boy into a kindly hug, and the blossoming elder branches wound around them both. And now they sat within a forest glade, and the elder mother had transformed into a young girl. Upon her head was a wreath of elder blossoms, her eyes very large and very blue. Hand in hand... They left this forest glade, and now they stood in beauteous countryside. It is beautiful in spring, said the little girl, and the boy saw the season before him. They stood in the green beechwood, where thyme lay in fragrant pillows beneath their feet, and pink anemones blossomed. It is beautiful in summer, said the girl. Now the boy's vision took in fields of corn waving like the sea. Colourful flowers grew, and the hedges were filled with wild hops. An evening moon rose round and large, and the haystacks in the meadows smelled sweet. It is beautiful in autumn, said the girl, and the sky now shone the brightest blue. The trees around them were decked in red, yellow and bronze canopies. Flocks of wild ducks flew overhead, and in the barns women and children picked hops into large tubs. They sang songs and told tales of goblins and witches. It is beautiful in winter, said the girl, and now all the trees were covered in frost. They looked like white trees of coral. The snow creaked underfoot. Houses could be seen now. And in the windows of these houses, Christmas trees glistened and candles flickered. Music and merry games danced within. this girl had shown the boy all the year. Every season, but now, the seasons and the years flew round in a blur and the boy grew into a man. He set out into the wide world far away to hot countries where coffee grows. And as a farewell, the little girl took one elder blossom from her wreath gave it to him to keep. He pressed it into a book and every time he took it out he breathed in the forest air of home. Many years passed and the boy was an old man now and he sat with his wife under a blossoming elder tree. The girl with the blue eyes and the wreath of elder blossoms in her hair sat in that tree. And she took two flowers and laid them upon the heads of the old couple, and each changed into a golden crown. And they sat like a king and a queen, under a fragrant tree in the evening sun, as he told his wife a tale of the elder tree mother. Some called me the Elder Tree Mother, said the little girl in the tree. Others, the Dryad. But my real name is Remembrance. I sit in the tree that grows on and on. And I remember all things. And am Keeper of the stories. And now the little boy found himself on soft pillows and did not know whether he had been dreaming. He recognised the teapot on the table, but no elder tree grew from it. And the little boy called out, Mother, I have seen the beauty of all the seasons, and I have been out to hot countries. Yes, I'm sure, replied his mother. It often happens when one drinks hot elder tea. And she tucked him in his blankets and told him to sleep once more. But where is the elder tree mother? the boy asked. Oh, she's in the teapot, said his mother. And there she may stay. Thank you so much for joining me today in story. I hope you take time to savour the last sips of your drink and all that remains is for me to wish you a very merry and magical winter. Farewell for now.
0: This comes from redbookmag.com What I remember most is love. I have almost no recollection of my childhood holidays, only a series of impressions. My name in glitter on a Santa hat, standing outside in the dark after Christmas dinner with cold cheeks and a full belly. I don't recall decorating a tree or ripping open presents, Those these things surely happened. My mother, who always got by with very little, made certain of it. But my Christmases are eclipsed by darker events. In 1982, I turned nine. My mother was institutionalized with mental illness. We lived with my grandparents that year, and not long after being released, my mother stopped taking her medicine. Her behavior once again turned erratic. Christmas came, the usable trips to the mall or the tree vendor must have felt Frivolous, but my grandparents were devoutly religious, and on Christmas Eve, we attended a candlelight vigil at our church. I don't remember anything about a car ride there or back or the Christmas day that followed, but one precious instant emerges. I'm standing alone in the front of the congregation, white candles burning in wall sconces and in the hands of the, uh, the congregants provide the only light. The preacher's wife nods at me and plays the opening strains of O Holy Night. My knees knock with nervousness as I begin my solo in a wavering little voice. I am overwhelmed with the sense that I am in the presence of something transcendent, something benevolent. I look out at my mother and grandparents in the second pew. My mother has not allowed my grandparents to touch her in months, but some grace that night makes her sit very close to them. My eyes shine and there are tears on my cheeks. I sing in my little voice. In the moment I am loved, I am safe, and we are family. All right, we are going into our year reading with Miss Kiki Dombrowski.
4: Hey, how's it going? This is Kiki Dombrowski, wishing you a very happy holiday season. I hope that your 2023 year was fulfilling in one way or another, and I hope that you were able to find moments of magic, transformation, and inspiration. I'm here with you today to discuss some of the predictions that I see coming for us in the year 2024. 2024 is an eight year, numerologically. So in other words, it is ruled by the um, magical energy of the number eight. I think this is going to be a year where many of us reflect on the idea of power. Whether this is personal power, um, leaders who hold power positions... Um, people who we believe have power that perhaps maybe is using it improperly, um, or even looking at heroic people that we consider to be leaders and use power for the greater good. The, number eight is also a very rational and logical number, yet there's an esoteric side to it as well because it does show us the infinity sign symbolically. This number is connected to the star card and strength. And because of this, I also think that 2024 is going to have some vibes of drama, extravagance, magnetism. Um, It's going to be a year with ups and downs. And I think that it is really important for each of us on a personal level to Try and remain in a space of balance. Um, One suggestion I would say is pause before you react in 2024. Another thing that comes to mind when I think of the year 2024 and the numerology of eight is um, a little terminology I hear at my corporate job, and I think that corporate jobs also really align with the number eight. The uh, saying is, set it yourself for success. So consider some of the goals that you have over the year, and do whatever it is you need to do to feel prepared. Um, Again, going back to the idea of being rational and logical, do a lot of planning, make a lot of lists. Um, And ultimately, with the number eight in 2024, and the idea of power Stand up for what is good and fair. The first question asked was in regards to women's rights and how women's rights would fare and endure through 2024. And I am very happy to say that the card pulled for this inquiry was the strength card, which is absolutely perfect with an eight year So I think that there are some things to keep in mind in terms of women's rights and equality um, in 2024. I first think that there may be some more demonstrations and marches, and there should be. Perhaps this is something that if you are an activist you may want to consider wondering what is it that I could do for my community to support women and um, their wellness, health, safety, and equality. I think that even if we're not natural activists, there are ways that we can still be supportive allies to each other. The eight card to me suggests that in 2024, we have to be mindful to be supportive allies to each other. Long gone are the days where we're petty, mean people, and instead we need to amplify and support each other. And especially support the voices and needs of women. The next question I received was in regards to the 2024 elections and another very interesting and surprising card. Uh, I pulled the Queen of Swords for this. I don't think there is any room for BS in the 2024 um, elections. We really need to demand honesty and transparency. Um, I think there are going to be some cutthroat situations. When are not in elections? But I'm hoping that with the Queen of Swords being such a card of clarity and cutting through BS, I'm hoping that there are systems in place to negate misinformation. A question that came up a few times, um, and I think is on everybody's mind is the economy. Um, The economy has been pretty rough in 2023. A lot of people are struggling with, um, you know, even getting groceries are expensive, or or the return of student loans. Well, I pulled the six of wands about the inquiry of uh, the economy in 2024. And honestly, that's a really refreshing answer. I am thinking the Six of Wands as a hopeful sign. Um, the Six of Wands tends to represent the winning of a battle. So maybe we're actually moving into a little bit more uh, <laughs> comfort. Uh, we've been through the battle and now there's some sort of victory on the way. So the economy, economy for 2024... I'm hoping there will be some relief and some success stories for all of us. Another question asked was about environmental issues, such as global warming. And so I drew a card to just see if there were any events or information that we needed in terms of environmental wellness uh, in 2024, and the answer received was the Ten of Cups. Another very refreshing and hopeful card. This makes me feel really good for a couple reasons. The Ten of Cups really represents a happy ending. There's a lot of joy here. So I'm hoping that this is a card representing that we kind of are shifting our ways. I think that, you know, after we're in a post pandemic world, um, with the inflation that we've been dealing with, we're not really in a time where we're going out and really amazed by what influencers are buying or having extravagant um, materialistic things. The things that fulfill us are closer to home. So I think that the 10 of cups in the environment, um, there needs to be cooperation. And the one thing I would say is that, maybe we need to like just pull our focus back from the whole world and global warming and these massive issues and just look out our window and ask ourselves what can I do to improve what's in my backyard what can I do to improve what is in my community and one other thing I would say as well is there's a lot of um homesteading magic with the Ten of Cups. So perhaps this is a suggestion that we all kind of get back to the land in one shape or another. It's just food for thought. I was asked to look into what would occur with Chinese and Russian powers in the year 2024. And for this inquiry, I pulled the Three of Cups, which is a very curious, curious card to pull. Um, I look at this and I interpret it as, yeah, there is some power happening there. But because it's three coming together, I wonder if there is some sort of alignment with a third country. What do you think? Now, I'm going to go into a couple more um, (laughs) gentle inquiries about 2024. Um, Although this is not lighthearted in any way, but quite, you know, it would be quite mind blowing if it did happen. There were a couple questions asked about aliens. So I pulled a card to see if there was any information about aliens coming forward in 2024, any sort of disclosure event. And the answer I received for uh, the inquiry about aliens in 2024 is the world. So, wow. Look up to the skies. I think that, you know, more and more every single year, we are receiving more information from the government um, that extraterrestrials exist. Um, The world, to me, it, it. I wonder if our world is going to expand next year, perhaps as well, with the world being such a card of enlightenment and connecting with the world above us, maybe if you just say a prayer, ask for (laughs) some sort of communication with your galactic ancestry, I don't know. Um, You know, go to a UFO conference. I think that aligning yourself with the idea that this is a reality, that there's life above and beyond Earth, I, I think that this is going to make it even more apparent. I think that people are really on board with the idea that there, there are UFOs and aliens out there. Um, and I think 2024 is just going to show that a little bit more. Uh, and one final thing about the world. Um, the world, uh, at least in the rider weight deck, um, is surrounded by this oval wreath. Um, So there's this symbol of this circle in the world card, and it's sort of reminiscent of a portal of a star or a stargate to me. So perhaps there are ways for us to finally, um, you know, have ET phone home. (laughs) Somebody also asked if there would be any uh, significant Bigfoot sightings. And um, as a huge fan of Bigfoot. I love everything Bigfoot. I was really bummed out to draw the Three of Swords. While I don't think that in any way this means that, you know, there's going to be no Bigfoot encounters in 2024, I just don't think that that's going to be the highlight of 2024. We obviously have a lot more drama going on. Um, one question that I always like to ask the cards each year is what magic do witches need to give to the world? So fascinatingly, I drew the tower, which I think is really, really powerful with an eight year. That's all about that sort of that drama, that theater, that power. There is a lot of power in the tower. (laughs) I made a rhyme. Um, There's also this theory that we live in the tower times and that this is a really chaotic era in uh, human history. And perhaps 2024 is just going to have a little bit more of that chaotic theater. But one thing I think about when I think of the tower card in terms of magic that witches can give to the world, I think we need to shake the old ways Anything that is not working for us needs to go. We need to knock over the Tower of Babel. We need to knock over those old power plays. You know, I I, I just don't think that, that next year is going to be a year where people are going to, you know, really be in support of somebody blowing a whole lot of money on a, you know, a bunker in Hawaii or a rocket ship that goes up into the, you know, stars. So, really step into your power next year. Um, When I think of the tower, I also think that um, 2024 is a great year to think about how um, banishment and protection magic play into your lives. Um, How do you protect your sacred space? How do you protect your personal space? What are your boundaries like? Um, What are the things that you need to banish you know, uh, is it time to figure out a way to, you know, cut out doom scrolling or um, eat healthier? You know, sometimes the tower just really makes us reevaluate what are the things that are working for us and are a benefit to our growth and our health and our wellness, and what are the things that we just need to knock out and, and, and get over. Uh, and finally, the tower. This is really interesting. I always think about this because the tower is so powerful and it's got that image of the lightning bolt in it. Um, witches, I think, are coming into their power in a huge way in the last, um, you know, a couple of decades, I'd say, you know, magic, witchcraft, and um, sort of this idea that we have the ability to um, create what we want in our lives. And um, is a really powerful, profound, and popular belief. So really in 2024, think about what you want to remove and what you want to invite into existence. And finally, I'll close with this. I pulled a card To just give advice for the audience listening to this. So, what is the advice, the general thing that you could keep in mind in 2024? For this, I pulled the Four of Swords. Remember to sleep. We don't need to be on 24 hours a day. We can pause, we can rest, we can pray, we could take deep breaths, and we can nap. So this holiday season, I hope you rest well, have wonderful company, and find ways to love your personal power and love the um, people you choose to be around. So again, thank you for listening and very happy holidays.
0: This comes to us from BuzzFeed.com. My dad's side of the family is from England, but my family lives in California, tradition every year is to open one gift on Christmas Eve. So once when I was 12, my mom gave me this really light box to open. I opened it and it was just a piece of paper. Until I read it. It said I was going to England first thing in the morning with my dad. It was the best gift ever. I missed my family so much and we even got to surprise most of them when we showed up on the annual family boxing day party. I was truly grateful. Mallory Sellins So we will be doing a reading of Jeff and the Maiden," an excerpt from "Grow Your Own Optimist," read by Olivy Blake.
5: Jeff and the Maiden," by Olivy Blake, from "Grow Your Own Optimist: A Which Way Collection. Anisha Song was 42 years old when she awoke to find her first husband, Tomaz, dead of a stroke beside her in bed. Tomaz was a bit older than she, but even so, it was unnatural. He was a young man still, by all accounts, with plenty of life left to live. He ate well, hydrated beautifully, exercised like a madman, in Anisha's opinion. Tomaz was so handsome, his students routinely tried their hand at flirting with him. He was gentle with his refusals. She'd seen him do it many times. He understood the haze of adoration, the edge of desire, the coupling of both in the nymphets who filled his lecture halls. They made Anisha feel old, Tomas agreed. His hair was only softly gray. Anisha stroked his temple and said with a sudden vigor, Tomas I'm so sorry. I told you it would keep happening, said her second husband, who was, had been, and would always be death. Well, not really, that would be a simplification of everything he was to Anisha, and she to him. That day, she would think of him as being prodigiously Jeff, but he was still technically death to anyone who wasn't Anisha, who had been dragging her feet for some time as to the subject of their engagement. Jeff was not as handsome as Tomaz, but infinitely more beautiful, and more patient, too. Anisha let out a sigh. But you said I could have a normal life. And so you have, Jeff mildly agreed. Don't you think? Nobody normal gets forever. Anisha stroked Tamaza's brow with a sigh, thinking again of when they met. He'd thrown up on her shoes and she'd thought to hell with him. I hope he dies. She smiled fondly down at him before looking up again at Jeff. You're sure that if I... The word agree came to mind, but Anisha could only feel the weight of the word quit. If I stop. "'Trying, living, choosing, being stubborn. "'Then things need not change,' Jeff confirmed with a nod. "'There is no requirement for monogamy in the classic sense, "'only a more spiritual fidelity, vows and such. "'Does that make sense?' "'Anisha had spent her life being shockingly monogamous. "'Not that she'd ever thought that would be the case. "'She had no interest in the care and keeping of men. "'Tamaz was an exception.' Jeff was more of an unavoidable vocational circumstance, and also not technically a man. I mean, she amended, because expecting things to be presented rationally was a very high ask indeed. Are you sure there's no other way? Jeff gave a grave, sympathetic nod, which Anisha took to mean she'd had 42 years to learn exactly what would happen next, and did not need vocal prompting. Fine. Anisha was very disappointed. This would be to lose three decades of a fight. Four, if you counted the years during which she'd been trapped but unaware of it. I'll do it. To his credit, Jeff didn't tolerate excessive sentiment. Within moments, Tomas took a breath. Anisha, said Tomas, frowning up at her from where he remained unnaturally still on the bed. Life appeared to return only gradually to his extremities, one finger wiggle at a time. I'm beginning to think you're right about the dangers of sleep apnea. I also regret to inform you that we may be out of eggs. I'm afraid we are also out of time, Anisha remarked with a drastic tone of levity, considering whether she might cry and then realizing, no, better not to startle him. Reign it in. Tomas, I want a divorce. Only then did Tomaz become aware of Jeff's presence in the room. At the moment, Jeff was flipping through one of the novels on Tamaz's side of the bed. It was excellent. Tamaz had exceptional taste in books and films and food. Tamaz always knew exactly what to cook or what restaurant to go to. He knew where to find the best view of every city. He knew the nature of time and that Anisha had been slowly choking the life out of him since she turned 21 and kissed him so inexpertly that she bit her tongue and then saw stars. Oh, Anisha, said Tamaz, raising one finger gently to the edge of her cheek. Okay. Okay. It had set in quite early, or so Jeff would tell Anisha, on a day where he was really more of a Megan. There was no real way to explain that. On a day that Jeff was being particularly nermagomed, he told Anisha that she, too, appeared as other things to him, sometimes more frequently than day to day. Sometimes hour to hour, occasionally moment to moment. She was of marvelous complexity and had a tendency to flex. But on the day that he was Megan, she told Anisha that the effects of Anisha's condition, or rather the effects of the pre-negotiated contract about which Anisha had yet to be informed, came on early, perhaps as a result of Anisha's own early puberty. She got her first period in the sixth grade during gym class, which was just as well since most of the class grew distracted by the hail of dead doves falling from the sky. I had a feeling this might happen, said Anisha's mother, Rena, when she arrived to pick up Anisha that day from school. There was a health crisis or something avian flu, she supposed. Rena took Anisha for frozen yogurt. There's a slim but unignorable possibility that you may be courted by a spirit representing death, Rena explained. Your father wasn't concerned, and neither was your grandmother, but I felt quite sure there might be a risk with you. I can't explain it, Rena added. I just saw it on your face when you were born. You'd been here before and you were very displeased to be back. I could just tell. What? said Anisha. Uh, Well, before your dad died, he told me a story, Rena said, about how some generations back, one of his ancestors had bargained with death, promising an heir for a bride. I wish you were here now. I'm not very good at storytelling. I'm more of a name all the elements on the periodic table kind of person. (laughs) Stories elude me. Rena was a doctor. She had been Anisha's father's doctor when he came to the emergency room with a bullet in his hand. That was sometime in his twenties, ten or so years before the bullet in his chest. He didn't have a dangerous job. He was a teacher, like Tomas. But lightning occasionally strikes twice. Well, try? suggested Anisha, because it seemed an important story if it made doves rain from the sky dead. Uh, fine. The point is, someone in your bloodline is owed to the spirit of death, whoever they are, in matrimony. There are supposed to be five signs, I think, said Rena. God, I wish I had a cigarette. Smoking kills, but it also relaxes. Noted, said Anisha. The signs? I don't remember all of them, Rena said. Your father was always a bit hazy on the details. Dead animals were one, I know that. Gifts of blood. I remember asking him what the fuck he meant. Sorry, that's not a nice word. Don't say that at school. I asked him what he meant by gifts of blood, and he said he had no idea, and then we got mm, distracted. Rena's cheeks colored slightly. So I never really pressed him. And then when you were born, I thought, oh shit, I should really have written them down. You could call Grandma, said Anisha, and Rena blanched. Ten terse minutes later, Rena hung up the phone with Anisha's grandmother. So, actually, dead animals is the second sign, said Rena. The first is gifts. Very possible this all got mixed up over time, though. Anyway, it's gifts, dead animals, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time. That doesn't sound right, said Anisha. And it wasn't. When Jeff was exceedingly Megan, he pointed out to Anisha that those are love languages, which wasn't technically incorrect. But in this case, Megan who would do so under the guises of Hildatritt, Chalko, Marquise, Yulia, and Earl, respectively, specified that actually the signs were all gifts, and the first gift was dreams. By then, Anisha had been having dreams about Jeff for a very long time. At first, it was just a voice in her ear, indistinguishable from her conscience. Eventually, though, she recognized it was coming from something alien to her, or possibly fractional, like a habit sloughed off over time. But not as it were, intrinsic. When Anisha was 19 years old, her first husband, Tamaz, threw up on her shoes. Then he looked up at her, dazed, and said, you look like a feeling I once had. And eventually, Anisha would come to realize that feeling had a name. Anisha, once an aspiring ballerina, had gone to a prestigious dance camp when she was 16 years old. It was a time of sexual awakening, disordered eating, the expression of timeless ennui in artistic form. The camp was bucolic New England at its summariest, and Anisha was bunked in a small cabin, one of six, with three other dancers, two that would go on to either feature prominently in the New York City Ballet or die tragically young. Not Anisha's doing, but not necessarily not her fault. The fourth dancer in their little quartet was actually Jeff, but Anisha didn't know that at the time. She hadn't yet met Jeff and therefore wasn't yet aware that Jeff could also at times be Jacqueline. Anisha would meet her future second husband within minutes of arriving at the camp. Her mother, Rena, had rented a car and driven her up, having traded a weekend of on-call duty with another doctor who needed someone to cover for his extramarital affair. Rina was a generally utilitarian person and did not need to approve of someone's actions in order to take advantage of the cards such actions conveniently dealt. Upon arrival, Anisha would become fast friends with Jacqueline, who was parentless for reasons Anisha did not initially ascribe to the circumstance of her, Jeff's, existence, and realized that Rina's plans of staying through the weekend to spend time with Anisha before she settled in for an entire summer away were actually, come to think of it, deeply embarrassing. Anisha quickly told Rena she'd be busy and wouldn't have time for the serene picnic by the lake or tranquil stroll through the picturesque town for which Rena had so valuably and unconscionably bartered. Rena's smile flickered only for a moment, because again, Rena was very utilitarian and had been something of a wayward youth herself. She figured it was only deserved. Rena's own mother had felt Rena too thoroughly westernized, her culture too readily discarded. Rena had not gone to summer camps, though she had always wanted to attend one. She went to a drab institutional state school because it was the practical thing to do, and because paying for her own mother's chemo and her own school tuition was virtually impossible otherwise. Rena was happy she could give Anisha the things she herself didn't get to have. It was also Anisha's right to squander Rena's feelings as she wished. Such was the nature and the privilege of daughterhood. Rena returned to the city, The girls found a dead possum underneath Anisha's bed. They played spin the bottle and kissed the boys they snuck into their room. They found a dead cat in one of the shower stalls. Anisha had dream after dream after dream about autumn. They danced and stayed up too late and woke up again groggy and danced. They broke and reset as people, as future deaths. Anisha found her name spelled out in blood across the cabin's only window, but quickly scrubbed it out before the others awoke. They kissed more boys. They kissed each other, giggled, and did not discuss it when it happened occasionally, again. Anisha had a dream about her father, who said, "'My, my, how you've grown.'" They found a dead mouse on Anisha's pillow, curled sweetly like it had been waiting for her to come home. They danced until their hearts beat percussively to La Bayadere and Coppelia. They got drunk in their ice baths at night. Anisha temporarily fell in love with Jacqueline, but didn't know what to call it how to name that kind of uncertainty. Desire sweetened terror, friction temporarily anesthetized fear. Jacqueline held Anisha's hair while she vomited up her girlhood. Anisha missed 11 of Rena's calls. At the end of the summer, Anisha performed in their company showcase as Giselle. By the end of Giselle's seven-minute descent into madness, Anisha saw that her mother was weeping silent but steady tears, like she wasn't aware she was crying. Anisha thought, fleetingly, Mommy. As Anisha took her final bow, she felt something give out in her knee. It was sudden and sharp, and though at the time she had no reason to think so, irreversible. Jacqueline had to help her off the stage. Anisha realized then, like a lightning strike, that she already knew Jacqueline and had dreamed of her before. A dead cockroach lay belly up beside the stage. The doctor told Anisha there was something wrong with her tendon. Part of it had deteriorated so much it was essentially dead and needed a graft. They resurrected her patella to the extent that they could, but it couldn't hold her weight anymore, not like it used to. Anisha no longer had the lightness she hadn't known was so essentially her gift, so she never saw her mother cry again. Anisha met her first husband, Tamaz, at a party off campus when they were both students at Columbia. Tomas, a graduate student, Anisha, an undergrad, who had been invited to the apartment by someone she knew from the restaurant where she waitressed part-time. Rina had been dead for six weeks on the day Tomaz threw up on Anisha's shoes, and she wished malevolently upon his spirit. The next day, she discovered Tomaz was her teaching assistant. Jeff was intensely McCall around that time. By then, Anisha was starting to accept that she was being courted in a way that was very unsanitary, but also easily blamed on the state of the Columbia dorms. McCall was nearly seven feet tall and identified as non-binary, but accepted the use of either they or he. In any case, they told Anisha that the thing with Rena had been hereditary and not technically related to their presence, but also they were obviously drawn to Anisha and thus that sort of thing would likely keep happening. More of a side effect than a goal. Anisha didn't clock it at first when they began speaking to each other. She knew in an abstract way, the same way she had known it with Jacqueline, that McCall was Jeff and that she owed him something, which was not technically unlike her relationships with other men. Anisha was 17 when she first spoke politely to a man at the restaurant where she waitressed, who would later briefly stalk her. It was very alarming for Anisha, obviously, and Rina had gotten so upset she fainted. It had taken several hours for her to wake. Later, Anisha would find the man's obituary with a note. You are promised to me and I will care for you always. Yours eternally, McCall." Anisha discovered that Tomas was her TA but thought nothing of it. He seemed embarrassed about the shoe vomit incident, but didn't dwell on it, which she liked. Tomas was a first-year doctoral student in the English department, Anisha pre-med, so for her, the class was merely an elective, a comparative literature course on world myths. She got particularly invested in her midterm paper, a study on the various identities of death. She thought it best to know thine enemy slash contracted future spouse, and spent nearly four hours talking to Tomas about possible sources until he got a sudden look of horror in his eyes. "'What is it?' asked Anisha, about to mention that if it was just McCall who showed up from time to time, he needn't worry, everything was fine. Then she saw the dead branch hanging off the tree behind her. "'Oh, it gets so much worse than that.' "'What? N- no, n- nothing,' stammered Tamaz, who, it must be said, had never been a stammerer. "'Nor would he ever be again.' The next day, a new TA showed up in Tomaz's place. He'd quit as a result of a scheduling conflict, the professor said. Anisha got an A on her midterm paper, in large part because of her conversation with Tomaz, who had shifted the direction of her research and also the nature of her thoughts. McCall became briefly Yasmeen. Anisha did not go home for winter break because she had nowhere to go home to. When classes resumed in January, she signed up for two pre-med requirements, Spanish and a class on evolution. She worked through the summer, finished her sophomore year, then her junior year. Three months after that, she bumped into into Tamaz at a Starbucks, his arm around a woman. Hi, she said to Tamaz, who blinked when he saw her. Hello. He excused himself to speak privately with Anisha, parting ways with the woman who he'd had his arm around, who had papers to grade. Tamaz stood wordlessly beside Anisha as she waited for her latte, McCall was the barista, but Tomas would not notice them until many years later when McCall was already Augusto. You threw up on my shoes at a party once, remarked Anisha. I, I know, Tomas shuffled his feet. I'm not, he paused. I don't normally drink so much. Did something happen? Yes. Mm-hmm. No, not that day, but uh, also, in a way, every day. Anisha looked at him, and Tomas said with a shrug, my brother oh yes my mother how long ago almost three years now you five i'm sorry anisha said politely it's not your fault said Tomas. Uh, sometimes it is she murmured before adding you said i reminded you of a feeling did i he looked at her quizzically well maybe you didn't mean it i mean maybe it didn't mean anything they were silent for a moment "'You know, I always sort of thought "'you might have left that literature class "'because you fell in love with me,' Anisha commented. "'Oh, I did,' said Tomaz. "'But i never heard from you after. "'Didn't seem appropriate. "'What if I fell in love with you too? "'Did you?' "'Just then, McCall announced to Anisha "'that her latte was ready. "'Helpless, she launched herself on tiptoe "'and kissed Tomaz, who would later prove "'to be very, very talented at such things "'despite an atrocious initial performance.' In fairness, he had been taken by surprise, and Anisha had thought she was being practical, killing a cat or some other act of violence upon her curiosity. Two years into medical school, Anisha would discover that her intentions to become a doctor were greatly impractical. Life was too fragile for her to be around, side effects or something. She understood two things by then, that she was cursed and her clock was ticking. She got the feeling it would all be much easier if she just gave in. Jeff was Onyeka Chuwaku. then Onyeka for short. He was looking at Anisha with something very close to sympathy. Are you ready? He said in his gentlest voice. She thought about it, about the way it felt to achieve such beauty that her brilliant, stoic mother wept, about the dream from her father, a gift from Onyeka, when he had been Yulia, about everything that had been taken from her. No, she said. Instead, she typed Tomaz's name into Google and messaged four different accounts before she found him. I just wanted you to know that I destroy everything I touch, she offered in fair warning. Don't let this go to your head, but I think I'm going to let you, replied Tomas, which was when it really began to end. After they filed the divorce papers, Tomas took Anisha home and poured her a cup of tea. She had a sip and then pushed it aside, instead climbing into his lap and grinding on him with mounting desperation. He carried her into the bedroom and they had slow, companionable sex for probably the 200,000th time. She came twice. Then she arranged their bookshelves and made lentil soup and scrubbed the toilet bowl with a toothbrush and then it was dark and Jeff was Modenka in a crown of braids. I can be Jeff if you prefer it, she said. Uh, "'Let's just get it over with,' said Anisha. Her wedding to Tamaz had been an elopement. Anisha had no family and wasn't really the wedding type. Tamaz might have done it, the whole party thing, because Tamaz was really very sparkling in social situations. The shoe vomit had been an isolated incident. Anisha had already been putting off marriage so long that people began to think there was something seriously wrong with her. After all, who wouldn't want to marry Tamaz? Only an idiot or someone pre-contracted to marry Jeff— the latter of which took too long to explain at parties. "'You won't be happy with me,' Anisha told Tomas after the seventh time he asked her to marry him. "'You want a family. I'm not going to have children.' "'For very understandable reasons,' Tomas agreed, because he had already grown accustomed to his occasional glimpses of Jeff.' It wasn't total constancy for Tomas, but it was certainly often enough. Somewhere, inevitably, Anisha would bump into Jeff at least once throughout the day, and statistically speaking, Tomas was bound to be with her on those occasions, probably about 50% of the time. I'm just not even sure what the point would be, Anisha said. Well, I just think it'd be fun to look you in the eyes and promise my life to you, said Tomas. Everything that came after that would just be an exercise in gratuity. Anisha felt again the singular sensation that she'd found someone much too good for her and that she would ruin him irreparably, despite that being the one thing she did not want to do. Well, losing him was the one thing she didn't want to do, but ruining him was a close second. But her wedding night with Tomaz was another event. Now she was with her second husband, who was Madenka. Anisha thought about her first kiss with Jeff, who had been Jacqueline at the time, and shivered. "'Giving in to your cursed ancestral demands "'doesn't change anything,' she said. "'I still love Tomaz. "'I'm still choosing to be faithful to him, "'sexually, if not institutionally.' Ladenka looked as if she would be sick. "'I do not want to participate. "'Corporeal customs.' "'Okay, then what do you want to do?' Modenka gave a small flourish of her hands "'before presenting Anisha "'with a small braided crown of flowers. "'Adore you,' she said. "'That's it?' Anisha wasn't sure if it was over or if it was starting or if any of it was even real. She felt incredibly grumpy and middle-aged, though Tomás told her she couldn't allow her to call herself that for at least another three years. 42 was young, young, young. Tomás was imperfect, obviously. He bit his nails and fundamentally could not multitask. He was an academic who was not always sympathetic to her vocational bouts of melancholy. He had moments of extreme crushing selfishness that left Anisha with feelings of profound, echoing loneliness. His body had grown soft in places, whereas Jeff was often chiseled, voluptuous, and or young, But love was space and love was softness and love was freedom and love was peace and love was compassion and love was comfort and love was terror and love was fearless and love was prophetic and love was uncertain and love was promising a future before you knew what it could hold and love was a laugh and love was a fixture and love was new and love was old and love was middle-aged and love was looking each other in the eyes just to say the word forever. And love was earnest, and love was urgent, and love was forgiving, and love was frozen yogurt, and love was regret, and love was the baby she wouldn't get to have and wouldn't have to mourn, and love was not needing forever, and love was a side effect of grief, and love was weeping in a dark auditorium to the stylings of Coralie and Perot, and love was the picnic she should have taken, and love was the father she'd never get to meet, and love was kindly overlooking the small altar of dead rabbits in the honeymoon suite that was really just the slovenly apartment they could barely afford. And love was, I can let you go so that you can be free. And love was this city, and love was this moment, and love was every day, and love was Tomaz. Madenka, who was Jeff, who had been Jacqueline, who had also, in Anisha's mind, been her father, who had been such a constancy in her life that they knew each other's every thought, smiled at her and said, Let me show you the garden. Then she opened a door that hadn't been there before, and Anisha stepped through it into the starry skies of night. And finally, two songs from Jessica Marie
6: Baumgartner. It's that time of year again, and I really, really, really want some snow.
7: (laughs) Oh, the weather outside is frightful.
6: jessica marie Baumgartner, you might know me from the magic of trees the magic of nature the magic of christmas from chicken soup from the soul uh everything that i write ends up being the magic of something and that was not planned that's just how things turned out and i'm okay with that i'm actually quite touched by it um it's been a magical life so uh I wrote something last year that I haven't done anything with. I would like to see it illustrated and made into a book, probably a children's book, of course, but it's not just a children's book. It's more of just a sweet little yuletide tale. So I would like to read that to you guys today and hope that maybe it brings you some peace and joy and and a smile. Uh, This is called Winter's Song for Little Deer. The days were growing short, the nights were growing long, and Little Deer wasn't so little anymore. She still loved to jump and squish around in the mud. She still loved to play tag with the squirrels running around. But the stars were shining brighter, and the ground was growing cold. She didn't want to go to sleep or bed down anymore. The song of winter whistled with a new taste in the air, and it sang of excitement and something new to Little Deer. She bounded through the trees, searching for what it could be. She tripped over logs and even leapt until she sneezed. Then in her favorite clearing, she found a brand new surprise. The trees were shining like the stars and dressed in fancy coats of white. The squirrels were running all around, playing hide-and-seek. Even the birds were singing instead of nesting in their sleep. Little Deer ran up to them and asked, "'What's going on?' And her friends all smiled and laughed, answering with their song. They sang of love, they sang of life, they sang of being silly, they sang of hope, they sang of peace, they sang of all their blessings. Little Deer leapt for joy. She danced and kicked the snow. She celebrated winter's song and could barely feel the cold. I hope that everybody feels very warm and that you share that with someone. Blessed be.
0: I firstly want to thank author Crystal Hope for sponsoring this episode of the Witch Daily Show and our 2023 annual Christmas variety show. For this year, we were taking the advertising for this episode, along with $1 from every printed issue of Witchway Magazine and every tea sold from Sipa Bell within December to donate to RIP Medical Debt. So this was a charity I chose because I heard about it and it seemed like a really wonderful cause. Essentially, debt collectors are able to purchase people's debt for pennies on the dollar and then typically they will pursue that debt. However, RIP Medical Debt does the same thing those corporations do, purchasing debt for pennies on a dollar. Instead of seeking repayment, they instead forgive the debt. So we were able to raise this year $291, which equates to $29,000 in medical debt forgiven. I have to say this feels pretty wonderful and I want to thank everyone who participated in this episode. Author Crystal Hope, follow her on Instagram, Piggy Dombrowski for our new year reading, Elise Wells for our information on Greece and poetry, Jessica Marie Baumgartner for her songs, Olivia Blake, and Emma Catherine, thank you so much. And thank you for all of you for listening this year, for supporting all of us, for supporting me, supporting this show, supporting all that we do. Without you listening, we wouldn't be able to do any of this. And I am truly, truly grateful to all of you. And I will see you next year.
7: Think of your fellow man, him a helping hand.